0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn to the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 57. And we've been looking through this book, and we're going to look um, from verse 14. Isaiah chapter 57, it's on page 744 from verse 14 uh, to verse 21. On uh, Friday, we went to see a film called Captain Fantastic. And uh, as a connoisseur of great music, I thought it would be something to do with the Brown Dirk Cowboy. Uh, those of you who are under 40 will go, what are you talking about? Well, you have to get cool and understand that Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy is one of the greatest albums ever, uh, the last and only great album Elton John ever did. But uh, it wasn't about that. It was a film that uh, caused me, actually, to be profoundly disturbed and depressed. And yet, if you go and watch it, you'll think, well, what's it to be depressed about? It's kind of life-affirming, and so on, as The Guardian says. Well, it's life-affirming in the way that our culture says, but in terms of reality and what the Bible says, it most certainly isn't. Um, And the way, perhaps I can describe it most, is this. Without being a plot spoiler, as they go to the funeral of their mother, and uh, the mother is buried beneath a gravestone, the um, hippie father and his homeschooled hippie children all turn up, and they take the body away. And the child says that it was a Catholic funeral and the parents are, the grandparents are shown as being religious and dumb and hard-hearted and cold and so on. And uh, the the gravestone above it says, may she rest in eternal peace. And one of the kids, I found this really chilling. One of the kids says, we need to get our mum out from under that such stuff. You know, rubbish And the mother's wish had been that she would be cremated and that her ashes would be flushed down the toilet. And I just thought, actually, it's a phenomenal image of where we're at in one sense in our culture. There's a denial of the eternal and a lifting up of the immediate and the now, but ultimately ends up with us all just being ashes flushed down the toilet. And I think within ourselves, we know that that's wrong. But what we're looking at this morning is such a contradictory picture of that. Now, it begins in verse 14. It will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. It's a road. And Isaiah uses that image a lot. It's an image that's used in life. We're on a journey. We're on a road. Uh, hopefully, we're on the road to somewhere. It's often how we describe life. Um, you may think, finally, I've got settled. But you haven't. Um, Craig uh, has just celebrated, I don't know what birthday it is he celebrated, his 20, 27th birthday. And he, he put on his Facebook post, I couldn't resist this, um, uh, I'm so thankful for the past 10 years. And I thought, well, what about the other 17? You know, and but he says these have been the most traumatic uh, marriage and no, blessed. That's what he meant. He meant the most blessed. <laughs> these have been the the most life changing. So you get married, maybe have a baby or whatever. Um, maybe you just moved here to this city, or you've just begun a university course, or you know, you've just retired. But your life never ever stands still, never stand still. We're on a road, and and it's true, you're either on the road to nowhere or we're on the road to somewhere. And here, Isaiah uses this idea of building up and preparing up the road. Now, the word that he uses is this idea of heaping up a road, piling up a road. And that's so that the road could be above the surrounding land so that it could not be flooded or destroyed. And it's picking up on a theme that he's used earlier. Um, If you've got your Bible, turn to Isaiah 35. And read this wonderful picture of the road. The desert and the parched land will be glad. Isaiah 35 verse 1. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there, it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it, it will be for those who walk in that way, wicked fools will not go about on it, no lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get upon it, they will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice of one calling calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. It is a beautiful and wonderful picture of People who have been oppressed, people who have been in the desert, people being able to walk in the most lush and, and wonderful surroundings. The early Christians were actually, were first of all, known as the way. And all of us are on a way. All of us are on a road. And I'm just simply asking, which road are you on? And I want to show you the raised road, if you like, the elevated road that is the way of Christ. And I want those of us who are Christians to realize what a privilege and a joy it is to be on that way. Because it's not always, it doesn't always appear like that. We are often as those who mourn. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So let's see what this says about this way. From verse 15 of Isaiah 58 For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. First of all, we have a God who speaks. This is what the high and lofty one says. A God who communicates, a God who talks to us. And this is what he tells us about himself. And it is very, very important to realize that the greatest need that you and I have is that we know who God is and we know about God. But our greatest need here is not about ourselves and to look away and to think about that. And he says three things that I would love to be able to go in. Some depth in, and I can't, but just to mention to you. One is that this God who speaks is exalted. In Isaiah 6 and verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just as the road is built up, the Lord is high and exalted. you cannot have too high a picture of God. I, I believe that most of our difficulties spiritually come from the fact that we have too low a picture of God and that we make a God in our own image and that we judge God by our own understanding and we do not see God in his glory and in his power and in his majesty. And I know that for many of us, We just completely and totally struggle with that. That even as we come here to worship, that our focus is very much on what we like and on what we think and on what we want and on what we feel and on what is going to happen to us and what is going around us and everything connecting with us. And the greatest need that we have when we gather for worship is that we get a sense of the presence and the power and the glory of God. One of the reasons that we sing, and we sing the Psalms, and we sing the the great hymns of the Christian faith, and we sing contemporary songs as well, but they are ones that are primarily about God and who he is. Because as we sing them, often we get a sense of that majesty and a sense of that exaltation. But he's also the eternal, as in chapter 9, verse 6, the everlasting father. He is the high and lofty one, the one who lives forever, literally, eternally, the inhabitant, the one who always stays there, the one who always lives. Now, why is this? To me, this is mind-blowing, because we're on a road, and what we find is we are constantly changing. You see that. You see that in different people. You see that in your circumstances, possibly you see that in your work, you see that in your home, just go back, I don't, know if, I don't know if you use Facebook, but if you do, and every now and then Facebook book a memory from seven years ago, or a memory from 14 years ago, I got one come up this week that showed me with hair, it was such a shock, um, I wanted to repost it, but I didn't think any of you would believe it, uh, it was just extraordinary, and you see how, look at the change. And there are some of you here and you think, wow, how much they've changed. And these children, I mean, I love the children in the church because they're so wee and they're so tiny. And then they're, they're just, they, they're growing and growing and growing and changing all the time. But the trouble is, we don't always change in a positive way. Sometimes it can be very negative. And that makes life really hard. You just think you're beginning to understand someone. You just think you're beginning to get into a situation. You just think you're beginning to get your job sorted or your course or your relationships and then things change. But God is not like that because he is the one who dwells in eternity. What does that mean? This is what it means. It means that he is not restricted by the created realm, particularly by time. I am and you are. In five years' time, I might be unrecognizable. I could have dementia. There could be a whole range of different things that happen. Who knows? We make plans about what we're going to do in such and such a time. But who are we? We are just but a breath. We are but a wind. Here today and gone tomorrow. But God is not restricted by the created realm. He is not restricted by time. And that particularly holds in the sense of death. Change and decay in all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. In one sense, death is a mockery. I I will make this prediction about our culture. I think it's already happening, and I think it's going to happen more and more. The people who govern our culture, the elites, and in my view, the corporations who will benefit most from it, are those who will cheapen death and make it a laugh. And so funerals will not be serious occasions anymore. They will be celebrations. And that's already happening. But when someone dies or when you get old and you're fairly useless or you're told that you're useless, well, why not just kill yourself or allow yourself to be killed? Because you're useless to society. And anyway, you're just going to go back into the cosmos. You're going to have your ashes flush down the toilet or the equivalent. We don't need to be buried under a gravestone which speaks of eternity. In uh, the film Cap- Captain Fantastic, films finishes with a brilliant song. I mean, the songs are great. Dil- um, Bob Dylan's beautiful, I shall be released. I see my light come shining from the west into the east. Any day now, any day now, I shall be released. But you see, when somebody dies, when you die, and when I die, it's not the end. Because we are part of the eternal and we're not part of the eternal cosmos or the eternal atom pile or whatever. We are created in the image of God. We have eternal souls. And we will stand before God. And when we die, it is not the end. And we will go into the presence of the eternal one. And then all our arrogance and all our boasting and all our vain glory will be as like that in the presence of the Almighty. He is eternal. He is eternal. And we need to keep saying that. We, we didn't invent God. And Jesus isn't a man who just came along and that's it. He is the eternal God. He is the I am. That's why the Jews were so horrified at him for claiming to be the eternal God. But he is. Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. He's holy. That's what we're told. I live in a high and holy place whose name is holy. And there the real problem lies because holiness is absolute purity, absolute goodness, absolute glory. We say, oh, if only God was good, then he wouldn't do that. Well, actually, God is good. God is pure. God is holy. And what that means is for God to stoop down and to be with us, the high and exalted one, is almost impossible. Humanly speaking, it's Impossible. But verse 15 tells us he is the God who not only lives in a high and holy place, but also is with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. I picked this up. I can't remember who said it. Um, I know it wasn't Calvin because I usually mark C when it says Calvin, but it was somebody I said it from. I thought it was very good. What does it mean to be one of God's people? And you see, here's the. The sadness of the way that our culture understands Christianity. Because in the film Captain Fantastic, the kind of cool, hippie people, they see the Christians, and in varied commas, the Christians who are in that film are like this. They're proud, and they're arrogant, and they're haughty, and they're dismissive, and they're unloving. And that's how they're portrayed. But that's not what it means to be one of God's people. This is what it means. It is to be contrite, to be penitent, to be people who know in their hearts that they are no better than their fellows and who weep for their own sin and for that of others as well. And it is these mourners that God comforts. The wicked are never comforted because they will not weep. They have no humility and are not sorry for their sins. You cannot experience the presence of the Lord when you are proud Confident of your own success and socially superior. A church that exists only of the successful, of those who have made it, of the rich and of the powerful and of the, the outwardly at least religiously moral. That is not a church of Jesus Christ because God does not dwell there. He doesn't dwell with the proud. You know, and you need to be quite careful because you could come here, and you are conscious of other people. Their marriage has broken up. Their child is taking drugs. They have become an alcoholic. They've turned away from the Lord, but I am not like that. I read my Bible every day. I, I, I read the Puritans. I, uh, you know, go to the Christian Union. I go to prayer meetings. I do lots and lots and lots of things. And yet... You are sitting in this church without any conscious sense of the presence of God because you spend your time looking around wondering how other people are and God is concerned with how you are and the pride and the arrogance that is in your life and your heart because you think that you've made it. And if only other people were like you, they would have made it as well. And Isaiah says to us, what's happened to you? Where's your spirit? Why are you not thinking straight? Because our God lives with the lowly. He lives with the people at the bottom of life's heap, not with those at the top of the pile. He revives the heart of the contrite. And contrite here means literally the people who've been crushed. And here's the paradox. Some of you are here and you're thinking, I I don't even want to be in this place. I I just want to go home, I want to go and lie down, I want to hide, I want to get away. These people, they're they're so happy, they're so holy, I'm nowhere near that. I am crushed. And God says, yeah, but it's you I live with. I live with the crushed. Because the Lord's purpose is to revive us. Though the Lord is exalted, Psalm 138, verse 6, He looks kindly on the lowly, though lofty, He sees them from afar. The word spirit and the word heart here, when used together like this, always they, they have this idea. Spirit is the ability to enter into life with zeal and gusto. And heart is your interior capacity for true thought, pure delight, accurate reflection. And this is what God is saying. He's saying when you're crushed, I come to you and I give you these things. How? How can he do this? Verse 16, I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on in his willful ways. Let me ask you a question here. If you were to go home just now and imagine the old fashioned way, there's a letter comes through your door, and it's quite official but it's not official in the sense of the, you throw in the bin because it's obviously a, um, you know, an advert or something. It looks like it's come from parliament or a court. And you open it up and you find that you've been summoned to court, that you're being charged with an offense, and it's an, a serious offense. The kind of offense that ends your job, that could end your marriage, that puts you in jail. I'll tell you one thing would you sleep tonight? I I think, I uh, you mean, you would just freak out. Well, most of us would. Well, God has a charge against us. And it's a charge that sometimes we just do not want to hear. It's why very often in church, people kind of skip over the bits where God has a charge against us. We like the bits where he loves us. We don't like the bits where he has a charge against us. But God does have a charge against us, and it's that we've gone against him, that we have rejected him and turned away from him, and that we have all gone against his law, not other people, but we, you, me. So how does God bring us to himself? Well, he fulfills his own law. It says he will not always accuse or be angry, he said, because if he did, we would faint away. We would be overwhelmed by the catastrophe that God would bring upon us. God knows in his mercy that if we were to face his wrath, we would be wiped out. The one prayer you should never pray before God is, Lord, give me justice. Because you face justice from God, you are going to be in trouble. God will satisfy his just law and his just Holy nature. He will not compromise his holiness. Genesis 6 The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe them from the face of the earth, the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret I have made them. But Psalm 78 says this Yet he was merciful he forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were flesh, they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. So we have this picture of human beings rebelling against God. God could, but because of his covenant of the rainbow, exemplified by the rainbow, doesn't, he could wipe out humanity, but he doesn't even though what humanity does to each other, to him and to his creation. And he remembers that we are flesh. He remembers that we are weak. But note what what it says here. Yet he kept on in his willful ways. Yet human beings just kept on in their willful ways. We want God to show us mercy. God shows us mercy. And we use that as an excuse to carry on sinning against him. He is infinitely patient. But what we're being told here is this road is built up, which is a road of forgiveness, a road of healing, and so on. We'll see that that comes through Christ. But let me just mention a couple of other things that are mentioned about that. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him. He is the God who heals. Divine healing includes inner strengthening, particularly of the spiritual faculties, which connect us and relate us to God. You're walking along a road and you get blisters. You need something healing on your blisters. You break a leg, you you absolutely need healing. Well, you and I are spiritually dead, some. Some of you here are spiritually dead. You haven't a clue who God is, you haven't a clue who Jesus is, and one of the reasons he's brought you here is to bring you to life. But some of us are Christians and we've been walking along the road, but we've become crippled. We've broken a spiritual leg, if you like. We're blistered. We're sore. We're wounded. We're hurt. And we're really struggling in our relationship with God. And He is the God who heals, He is the God who guides, He is the God who restores comfort. He leads me by the still waters. You're saying to God, Oh Lord, I need guidance. And He says, Yes, but I am the God who guides, I need comfort and he is the God who comforts. So we have this paradox of a God who sees our sin and sees our sinfulness and hates the sin, yet at the same time, the God who comes alongside and without excusing our sin, but punishing it and destroying it in Christ, he comforts us and helps us. And therefore, he is the God who creates praise I will guide him and restore comfort to him. Verse 19, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Literally, it says it's not just praise. It's creating the fruit of the lips, which is to be praise. Our lips were not created to curse. They were not created to blaspheme. They were not created to mock God. It is for me one of the most chilling and sad indictments of our culture that I hear children using the name of Jesus only as a swear word. That's horrible, absolutely horrible. Or when you hear the ugly and foul language that comes from people's lips as they curse one another, as they shout and yell and abuse one another. And whether they do it through a keyboard or do it face to face, it is something that is the opposite of what God and intended our lips to be. They, we, we are to have praising lips, glorifying lips, lips that speak words of truth and words of comfort. Yes, sometimes tough words. But we, what we say, what we write, what we express, it's always a really good standard to look and say, Is this, is this what God created me for? To say this kind of stuff, to write this kind of stuff, to gossip in this way, to tell these lies, to mock and to abuse. We had a day yesterday at Solas and Andy gave a, a tremendous talk on um, the internet and how we use the internet and how the internet uses us and can sometimes take over us. Well, be careful when you use the internet. The internet's a great tool, but sometimes... It expresses the thoughts of our hearts far too well and that anger and that sarcasm and that bitterness that you show in those posts, in those retweets that you do. They are reflective of your heart and it's not a pretty sight. He intends us to bring praise. And then he goes on. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. He's the God who brings peace. And the the repetition here means that it's real peace. Ephesians 2.17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, there is another side to this. On Friday in St. Andrews, a number of world religions got together and issued a statement which was published in the Courier and I think elsewhere. It included comments from the Hindu scriptures and the Koran and uh, um, various other religious works and indeed the Bible. An absolute misquote from the Bible, completely out of context. And there was a wee poll that the readers of the Courier were invited to respond to. Do you think religions are necessary to bring more peace, or will will bring more peace. And not surprisingly, 80% of people said no. I would have ticked the no box, because I don't think religions will bring peace. I think the statement is ludicrous and farcical, because peace doesn't come about because people all say, look, we're all reaching together for the absolute, we're all part of the one. That was part of the statement. No. No. Look, the Bible's so much more realistic. The wicked are like the tossing seas, says Isaiah, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Look, we're all for peace. Here's a word of advice for those of you who are thinking of entering Miss World. And if you're a manic, applies to you as well, because you can cross. Um, you know, you're thinking of entering Miss World, right? Well, assuming you're good-looking enough to be able to do that, when they do the interview with them, just tell them you're all for world peace. That's, that's your ambition in life. You love cats and you want world peace. It's, it's, everyone's for peace. Hitler was for peace. Stalin was for peace. Everyone wants peace. We, oh, we're just for peace. Maybe, maybe ISIS might be the only ones you could say weren't for peace, but I'm sure they are in their own way because Islam means peace, according to them. What's Peace. What about people who reject peace? I read this this morning. I I have weird reading. It just went like this. Peace can can be created by a critical mass of people focusing their thoughts on peace or having peaceful thoughts. And when enough people focus on peace instead of war, on harmony instead of discord, on love instead of hate, the idea of peace will resonate throughout the world. This groundswell of thought will lead to actions that will achieve the goal of world peace and understanding. That is why we are focusing on sponsoring a contest to inspire composers to create a new peace song that we can all sing. There, it's there! War is over. Happy Christmas. War is over. Let's all hold hands and let's all have peace thoughts and let's all think peaceful thoughts and i say to you right now, right, I want you to empty your minds and just think really, really peaceful thoughts about your situation at home and your situation at work and your situation in the church and everything else and lo and behold, as you think peace, peace will come. No, it won't. It won't. That's not how it happens. Lennon and... Uh, Yoko Ono's song. All we're saying is give peace a chance. It's not for re- any. It, it, it was nonsense. One, two, three, four. Everybody's talking about bagism, shagism, dragism, madism, ragism, tagism. Thisism, thatism, ism, 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 ism. All we're saying is give peace a chance. Everyone's talking about ministers and sinisters and bannisters and canisters, bishops and bishops and rabbis and Popeyes and bye bye and bye bye. All we're saying is give peace a chance. And there are people going. I wonder what all that means. It's just rubbish. It's just. Verbal, just putting words that rhyme, it's what a three year old would do. And it's a three year old's version of world peace coming from adults who think or who thought that lying in a bed in a hotel with TV cameras on them was a means of bringing world peace. And it's not. It's not. They are tossed and disturbed, says the Bible. The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. They're tossed by forces from outside and forces from within. Even on the calmest of days, the sea cannot keep still because it's subject to external forces that disturb it. The wicked are always fretting to achieve their ends, and yet what they do is ultimately worth us. And now I will quote Calvin. Calvin. Calvin says they are terrified and alarmed by conscience, which is the most agonizing of all torments and the most cruel of all executioners. You can do all the chanting you want. You can light all the candles you want. You can think all the beautiful thoughts that you want. But you will never get away from what is inside you accusing you. You can suppress it, but there's no peace for the wicked. So how do we get real peace What separates peace, peace from there is no peace? The two things that come together just at the end there. The road to peace is the road, Christ. Come to me, says he, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Later on, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So here's how you get peace. The greatest way you get peace is to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first relationship that you've got wrong and the most, re- most important relationship to get right It's not that with a spouse or with a child or with a parent or with a boss or with a work colleague or with a friend. It's not even with yourself. The relationship you need to get right is your relationship with God. And you will never get that right if you try and make peace with God by yourself. But if you accept the peace that Christ brings because he died for you on the cross, because he gave himself for you then you can accept what he says. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's the way of holiness. That's the road to heaven. That is the way to eternal life. Believe in me, said Jesus, and you have eternal life. I despair at the shallow superficial, flimsy culture in which we live, in which religions as well as Everyone else, secularists and so on, just say, well, all we've got to do is think nice thoughts and hold hands and, and just be kind to one another and everything will be okay. No, it won't be okay because you're not okay and I'm not okay and I need to come to Christ and I need to know forgiveness and I need to know healing and I need to know renewal because I am a broken person and I can't even heal myself, never mind heal the world. And the song that I will sing will be the song that is a song of praise to Christ as healer and redeemer and peacemaker and savior and Lord because he healed me and in healing me heals other people and is part of this renewal of this whole world. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that You are the way of peace. Build up the road, remove the obstacles for anyone here who doesn't know you. And those of us, O Lord, who do know you and yet are troubled in so many ways, lay your hand upon us that we may know peace like a river attending our soul, for we ask it in your name, amen. I'm gonna finish by singing.